is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show. And we love telling stories about entrepreneurs, small business people trying to live their American dream, grow their businesses bigger, and have their families prosper and their communities. And our own Alex Cortez went to a fascinating event called Open Call, where Walmart opens their doors to over 500 entrepreneurs to pitch their American-made products, all in hope of getting into the retailers over 11,000 stores. It's a great democratization of the buying process for folks who may not know anyone at Walmart, and it's a part of Walmart's commitment to buy an additional $250 billion of American-made products in a 10-year period. And Alex now brings us the story of a praline proprietor he met there named Suzanne Hart. I'm Suzanne. This is my mom, Kay, and so it's named Katie Sweet. We're all scared of her, I'm just going to say that. She's an accountant by trade. The numbers match. It's We're all responsible. So, just as an example, how expensive was their hotel bill last night? It was way high. We're going to hear about that. Yeah, because, um, yeah, we should have brought the car and stayed in the car. <laughs> dinner, we had crackers. We started with her grandmother's recipe. She and my dad started a company in 72, basically because my grandparents were ill and they stayed home to take care of them. My dad was a gourmet food salesman. He had to work out of the garage at that point so they could be there for them. We all lived with them, and then uh, they just, we ship about 300,000 pounds of candy a year. We have 60 employees now, so we have 30 for this company, we have 30 for another company, and some people have been there 30 years. So we're the second generation coming into it. It's, it's really hard to have your own company. I mean, it's very hard. You work a ton of hours. There's no guarantee. Everybody gets paid before you do. And, you know, uh, you have to plan for everything and stuff happens. But you're responsible. You get your finances in order and you mind your finances and that detects everything you do. You can't go too forward because you've got a lot of people that you're responsible for. Including her four kids, the third generation who grew up in the business. And my little boy messes with their business calendars where he goes and writes his name across all of them. Yeah, that's not a good thing. They get to live well in text and, um, you know, they tell us how we could do it better. Um, they tell me how to do Instagram because I put their pictures on there and I had to take them all off because I could be business oriented. You know, they, they, they're so critical. And at that very moment, one of their kids texted them this. In the cool kids club, yet yeah. okay, that's my 17 year old, yeah. She's, um, cool yeah. kids club, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, we're not, no, they let us know, no, yeah. Thankfully, Suzanne's fans do speak to her more sweetly. We have people all over the country that call us, and I have a little fan book that I talk to everybody with. They write to me, and I write back, and I send them little Texas tins, and you know, that we we all talk, it's very nice. They visit, they bring flowers it's kind of really i'm not kidding <laughs> your customers bring yes, your flowers? yes they do yes it's that good yeah and yeah it's a whole it's it's a it's a family business and uh we share it's like a reality show without the show okay and we're nice to each other because it's more effective to be nice to someone and respectful and get the job done than you know 
But what I really wanted to know more about was this fan book thing. People will call in and they start asking about the product and they see it somewhere and they want to buy it, but it's like an individual at home and they, they don't have a credit card and they want to write a check and I'm like, okay, let me send you a couple of samples and then they're like, they write like thank you notes with real mail and everything's very sweet and then we talk and then you know, you hear about the weather in Wisconsin, or there was a gentleman in Detroit that liked it, and then there's a man with Alzheimer's that his family bought it for all of his nurses because he requested it with the Prowlings in Texas. And then I have a lady named Sugar whose real name is Carlene, Carl and Lean, okay? And she's in California, and we're friends, we talk, and she's in a assisted living, and we ship out to her, and it's fun. I mean, they, they all come by and let us know how they're doing. They're very nice, I mean, they're very sweet, and they're, they just want to talk. People just want to be heard, seriously, they, and they like getting mail, and they want to know that you're not just a service thing going, yeah, whatever, and blow them off, you know. So it seems crazy that as the owner of a business, Suzanne is spending so much time chatting it up with fans, but Suzanne sees it as anything but crazy. Well, I need to do that for me because it keeps me real with, and plus people tell me what's going on. They tell me how my front people are answering the phone, how the product arrived, and I listen. People will tell you exactly what's going on. They'll tell you if they can't look at your website, if your website's not up to par, you know, if it's hard to shop on, they tell you and we fix it. So I, and then sometimes I call them just to ship them something and ask them what they think, and then they give me the whole rundown. They will tell you exactly what you may not want to hear, but you're hearing it from someone. I was curious, how many of these regulars does Suzanne have that she's talking with? I don't know. Probably, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Between you don't need to mumble 20. it. You could say it. Well, I mean, it's, you know, it's a, we're all friends. We talk a lot. And, you know, and I let everybody know if they call in to put them through to me no matter what. And we talk and I stop what I'm doing. It's a lot of fun. It's I'm very blessed on that because they keep you real and then you have to know your customers. And when you lose sight of that, you really shouldn't be in the business because that's who's buying your product. Does that sound kind of cliche? It's true. It's true. It's really true. I mean, everyone's money is green and everyone's trusting you with with what, you know, that you're ensuring what you're giving them. It's, a, it's a, an honor. And before we forget, how did their pitch meeting go? Well, Walmart's buyers were interested enough to invite Katie Sweet to come back and this time to show them all their products. A great sign for this small business. And if Walmart moves forward with bringing them in the stores, Suzanne thinks it'll enable them to create 10 to 15 new jobs. Adding 10 jobs in our area is a very big deal. Yeah, and we have a 24,000 square foot warehouse that we can build into two stories to run like three crews. And we're approaching that as we go into like double shifts. Growing pains are hard. That's the hard stuff. Talking to people is fun. You know, <laughs> running two crews is <laughs> lots of logistics. And great job as always, Alex. And my goodness, open call at Walmart. Hundreds of folks like Suzanne Hart trying to get their product nationwide. And what a thing to do. Again, a commitment to $250 billion worth of American-made products in a 10-year period. Suzanne Hart of Katie Sweet. You can learn more about her yummy pralines by going online to katiesweet.com. Suzanne Hart's story and open call stories from Walmart here on Our American Stories.
return to Our American Stories, and we're joined now by one of our favorite best-selling authors and one of the nicest guys you'll ever meet, Brad Meltzer. His most recent book, The First Conspiracy, is his first stab at nonfiction, and it's about a secret plot to kill George Washington. I found this story nearly a decade ago in the place where all good stories hide, which is in the footnotes. And I remember going through that footnote and seeing the words that said something like there was a secret plot to kill George Washington. And I remember stopping on that and going, is that real? Is that fake? Is that nonsense? What is it? And it was real. In 1776, there really was a secret plot to kill George Washington. When George Washington found out about it, he gathered up those responsible. He built a gallows. He took one of the main co-conspirators and he hanged him in front of 20,000 people, the largest public execution at that point in North American history. George Washington brought the hammer down, was like, do not mess with me. I'm George Washington. I'm going to be on the money one day. And uh, I became obsessed with this story. And the first thing I did is I went to Pulitzer Prize winning author Joseph Ellis, who wrote one of the great George Washington biographies. And I said, you know the story about to kill Washington? He said, I know the story. He said, but the reason it's hard to research is it's a story about George Washington's spies. And you can find out, he explained, exactly how many slaves George Washington owned, but you'll never find all his spies. By its nature, he told me, what you're searching for will forever be elusive. But he said, you got to try. He's like, at the best case scenario, you get a book out of it. At the worst, you, uh, you have an adventure. And I love an adventure. And I'll tell you that the first thing I did is I called my friend Josh Mensch. And when we did a TV show, many people know my the shows that I used to do on the History Channel. One was called Decoded and one was called Lost History. And one of the things we did on Lost History is we searched for lost historical artifacts. And on the very first episode, we told the story of the famous flag that the firefighters raised at Ground Zero on 9-11. Everyone knows that famous photograph of the firefighters raising the flag. Well... We were, the flag 24 hours later went missing, and it was gone for over a decade. And we wanted to get it back. So we told the story of the missing flag, who had seen it last, where it was. And four days after that first episode aired, a man walked into a fire station in Washington State and said, I saw the show Lost History. This is a 9-11 flag. I want to return it. It actually worked. And we spent nearly a year authenticating this flag. We worked with the former head of the FBI's Art Crimes Unit. They, we got to uh, authenticate it and unveil it in, on the 15th anniversary of 9-11 in the 9-11 Museum, where it is still on display. One of the most amazing, humbling moments of my life. And, and the truth was, we got a lot of credit for it, but the credit was for the whole team. And that team was led by a man named Josh Mensch, who was an award-winning documentarian. And he was our best researcher, our best writer. And I said to him, I want to do the secret plot to kill George Washington. It's going to be hard to research. You want to jump down the rabbit hole with me? And he said yes. And that's where the book started. And what was really interesting to us as we really got into the plot is what happened and, and how it kind of unfolded. It was, it was a plot that really starts with George Washington had his own private bodyguards. And he had asked all of his top military leaders, he said, give me your four best men. He wanted the best of the best. George Washington personally narrowed it down to about 50 men. And those became what they called the General's Guard, some called the Commander's Guard. But the name that stuck was this title, the Lifeguards, because part of their job was to guard George Washington's life. And these were the men 
who turned on George Washington. These were the one men who were in the plot to come after George Washington. And it was a stunning revelation when we found that out for me. Uh, what I thought was so amazing is what George Washington does when he, they start getting wind of what's going on is he launches a secret committee that no one knows about. And he puts eventually John Jay in charge of the three men who are eventually in, in working in this committee. It's called the Committee on Conspiracies. And that's their job, to find out the conspiracies, find out who's plotting against them. And what's amazing is uh, it's led by John Jay, who eventually becomes the first Supreme Court justice. But at the time, in 1776, John Jay is just getting started. And he starts knocking on doors, trying to find suspects, pulling them out, interrogating them. What he's doing in the process is he's building America's first counterintelligence agency. And you, I can tell you that right now people will say, oh, that the precursor to the CIA is the OSS. It's not. It actually traces back to this moment in the plot to go after Washington. In fact, right now, in CIA headquarters in Arlington, um, in Langley, I should say, there is a room dedicated to John Jay, who they call the founding father of counterintelligence. And so you'll see that this plot also gives us the birth of counterintelligence in America, because we learn, and George Washington learns, you don't just need a good offense, a good army to win the war, you need a good defense too. You need to know what's coming. You need that intelligence. And what was, I think, fascinating to me as we looked into the story, you know, George Washington is one of the most arguably the most famous American who ever lived. But we also, just as oddly, know the least about him as a person. He's not like Jefferson or John Adams, who writes these flowing letters home as we know all of his feelings. George Washington played everything close to the chest. Barely, you know, on the day that they, you know, they hang this man in front of 20,000 people, it barely mentions a, a, in his diary what happened. If I murdered someone in front of 20,000 people, I'd be like, your diary had a rough day. But George Washington instead, just again, barely mentions it. And we always take our heroes in America, we dip them in granite, and we hold them up to worship them. And we do them a huge disservice. Because anyone who you look up to, whether it's George Washington, any hero you have in your life, Dr. King, Rosa Parks, whoever it might be, have moments where they were scared and terrified, where they didn't know if they could go forward. And they do. And it was the same with George Washington. You know, the story that we tell, especially about the American Revolution, is, you know, we just held hands and the military came together. We dreamed of democracy. We took down the British, the greatest fighting force who ever lived. It's a wonderful, inspiring story, but it is by no means the true story. It is a legend and myth, and we're a country founded on legends and myths, and the legends and myths we love most are our own. Back then, you think we're divided today? We were just as divided back then. In 1776, in New York City, there were nearly as many loyalists on the, on the British side as there were patriots on the American side. And the people you were, you know, were your neighbors. You didn't know if they wanted to kill you. You had no idea. It was the same in our own military. There were just lots of regiments. There's Massachusetts one, Virginia one, you know, Connecticut one. We weren't some unified army at the beginning. And, in fact, there's a scene in the book where you see George Washington uh, brings all of his troops, trying to bring them together in Harvard Square, in Harvard Yard in Massachusetts. And the Massachusetts regiment sees the uniforms of the Virginia regiment, which has something frilly on their uniform, start making fun, mouthing off, fight breaks out, and George Washington races in, sees his own men fighting, grabs them, shaking them, saying, what are you doing? Why, stop fighting with each other. We're on the same team. If ever there were a metaphor for where we are today, there it is. And we have to remember that our greatest heroes are the ones that pull us together, not to pull us apart. And 
speaking of that hero, it's amazing to watch George Washington in that moment. Because, you know, we love to tell this great story that George Washington's the greatest leader who ever lived. But if you look at the real history of it, if you really take it apart, you can see that George Washington, in the very first battle, the Battle of Brooklyn in 1776, when the British invade, we get our butts kicked. We don't win. We get our butts kicked. George Washington gets out generals. He doesn't have the experience of the British generals. In fact, he gets pinned down. He's got the British in front of him. He's got the East River behind him. This is the moment George Washington should die. There's nowhere to run. He should die in this moment. And instead, George Washington does the best thing he always does. He adapts. He plans a daring escape in the middle of the night. And as a fog rolls in on the East River, they commandeer every boat they can find along the East River. And one by one, slowly start putting their men aboard these boats. But what happens is something really incredible is George Washington won't get on any of the boats until he makes sure that his men, even the lowest ones, are aboard first. They see him risking his life for theirs. And not that that's the magic moment that brings America together. There are plenty before and plenty after. But boy, does that show you what a leader is. It shows you. I love the when you read the first conspiracy, you get to see the secret plot against George Washington. But what I love even more uh, is that you get to see the depth of George Washington's character in this book. And it's so vital today, especially as we think of our own leaders. And Meltzer is so right. And the nation was deeply divided. Some estimate a third were with the British crown, a third were with the patriots, and a third were just hiding under their chairs, hoping it would blow over. And by the way, we have a terrific hour on the war inside Ben Franklin's house. The book was The Loyal Son by Daniel Mark Epstein. And it turns out Ben Franklin and his son were on opposing sides. The son was the royal governor of New Jersey, and Ben Franklin implored him to join the Patriots. He did not. And Franklin's own son ended up in a terrible prison in Litchfield, Connecticut, two years in solitary, and then ultimately exiled to England. The father and son never reconciled. So it is so true what Brad Meltzer said. The country, well, it was divided at its birth. When we come back, we'll continue with Brad Meltzer. The book is The First Conspiracy, The Secret Plot to Kill George Washington. Turn to best-selling author and friend of this show, Brad Meltzer. When we left off, Brad was telling us about the depth of George Washington's character from his book, The First Conspiracy. One of my favorite stories from the book. It's one of the last experiences I had. I was in uh, Kennebunkport, Maine, uh, a number of months ago, honoring Barbara Bush, who was a dear friend of, of my wife and I. We done a lot of literacy work with Mrs. Bush. There was no politics about it. Her dream was to teach everyone to read, whether you were old, whether you were young, black, white, Hispanic, immigrant, whatever you were from, that's how you unlock the American dream. I loved her for that dream. And we were honoring Mrs. Bush after she passed away. And now we know that President George H.W. Bush is sick. And we know what's happening at this point. It was a couple months ago, a few months ago, I should say. 
and they bring us into, um, they, they told me that they were bringing in some of his favorite authors to read to him. And they asked me to come in and read to him. And I said, I'd be honored. And I go into the office and, um, and we know what's happening, right? This is the end. And it's me and my wife. It's President Bush is there, his service dog, Sully, Secret Service leave, leave us alone. And we can tell what's about that. And they, in fact, they tell me that, listen, he's, he's sleeping a lot these days. And he's going to fall asleep within about 10 minutes. So just you'll be in there 10 minutes. And that, I said, that, that'd be, I'd be honored. And I walk in his office. There's a stack of about half a dozen books piled on his desk. One of them is my book, The First Conspiracy. He had given me a blurb on the book. President Clinton had given me a blurb on the book. Um, but this book, I give it to him, sent it to him months and months ago. This one looks like it's been read like over and over. It just looks dog-eared. And I say, sir, you want to read this book? And he's not really talking much back then. He says, mm-hmm. He can say, mm-hmm. And I pick up my copy of The First Conspiracy, and I brought this section, one of my favorite sections to read in there, is where George Washington, for the very first time, has the Declaration of Independence read to his troops. And sure enough, in 10 minutes, President Bush has fallen asleep. And then I get to those words, those words we all know. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. And in that moment, President Bush's eyes pop open. He's wide awake, locked on me, like as if the Declaration of Independence is just part of his lifeblood. And I get to the end of the chapter and I say, sir, you want to read another chapter? And he says, uh-huh. And I, we get to the end of that one. I say, sir, you want to read another? Uh-huh. And then another? Uh-huh. And we go through, and instead of being there for 10 minutes, I'm there for a full hour. And when I'm done, I shake his hand. I say, thank you. I know it's the last time I'm ever going to see him. I thank him personally for what he's done for me and for the country. And we leave there. And I can tell you that when President Bush passed away, one of the things that struck me was that in so many of the tributes to him, I saw one word that was used over and over, which was this word, decency, decency. And yes, it's because he was such a decent guy. But it's also because I think as a culture right now, we're starving for decency. No politics about it. Whatever side you're on, Democrat or Republican, we're starving for decency. And I think it's why we love those leaders like George Washington, like George Bush, leaders who are modest and who are humble. Uh, and I think right now on social media, we celebrate those in our culture who are good at calling attention to themselves, whether it's on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter, who write in all caps and multiple exclamation points telling you that they have all the answers. But our best leaders are the modest, hardworking ones. Uh, and I think that when I worked on the first conspiracy, one of the great things that I was able to do was to get that reminder for myself in the form of George Washington. And with that, I'd like to read for you from the first chapter, the opening scene, the prologue of the first conspiracy. New York, New York, April 1776. The trap is set. It's quiet on this night. Moonlight shines over a clearing in a dense wood. The silence is broken by the drumbeat of hooves in the distance, growing steadily louder. Soon a dozen uniformed men on horseback emerge from the blackness, followed by a dark covered coach. The party halts not far from a large wooden manor house that sits at the clearing's edge. A few of the riders dismount and prime their muskets, standing guard. They scan the clearing, apparently thinking all is safe. They're wrong. A moment later, the coach door opens, and a man in a long coat steps out from the darkness. His name is George Washington, 
the commander-in-chief of the Continental Army. The trap is planned for him. He has no idea it's coming. For the last nine months since the day he was appointed to his command, Washington has had a nearly impossible task. Organize a scattered mess of backwards militias and untrained volunteers into a functioning national army. And not just into any army. This small, inexperienced, poorly equipped army needs to stand up to what is probably the biggest and most powerful military force in the world. By any normal measure, they don't stand a chance. And Washington knows this, just as he knows that with every decision he makes, thousands of young soldiers' lives could be lost. Tonight, even more is at risk. Washington has just arrived in the western woods of Manhattan, about two miles north from New York City's bustling commercial district that covers the island's southern tip. He's just finished a week-long journey from Boston, and he's here now to fortify the city against the first major British offensive of the war. What he's facing is terrifying. Sometime in the next few weeks or months, the massive fleet of the vaunted British Navy will swarm into New York Harbor. Hundreds of ships and tens of thousands of soldiers prepared to invade the city. They're coming. It's just a question of when. The colonies have placed all of their hope and trust in him, It is up to this one man, George Washington, to lead the small Continental Army and withstand the massive attack. Tonight, among the soldiers accompanying Washington, a few are dressed differently than the rest, in short blue and white coats with small brass buttons. They are known as the lifeguards, an elite group of specially trained soldiers who are handpicked to serve as Washington's bodyguards. He takes special pride in these soldiers, and he trusts them above all others. In the faint moonlight, Washington slowly walks toward the nearby manor house, which will serve as his headquarters for the next few critical weeks before the British attack. And what George Washington doesn't know is that here in Manhattan, the coming battle isn't the only thing he should fear. There are other enemies waiting for him, enemies more sinister than even the British Army. At this exact moment, three miles away due south in the New York Harbor, a ship is anchored in the darkness. On board is one of the most powerful men of the colonies, the exiled governor of New York, and he is masterminding a clandestine plan to strike a knife into the heart of the colony's rebellion. In the dead of night, small boats carrying spies shuttle back and forth to him, delivering intelligence from shore. At the same time, two miles away from where Washington now stands, the mayor of New York City, working in concert with the governor, carries a secret cache of money. His plan? To tempt Washington's soldiers to betray their army and their country in a breathtaking act of treason. And several blocks from the mayor's office in one of the city's underground jails, three prisoners whisper to each other in a dank cell out of earshot of the guards. They have no idea that their quiet murmurs could change the future of the continent. They are all players in an extraordinary plot, a deadly plot against George Washington. Most extraordinary of all, some of the key members of this plot are in George Washington's own inner circle, the very men in whom he has placed his greatest trust. You could call it America's first great conspiracy, but at this moment, America doesn't yet exist. Some of the details of this scheme are still shrouded in mystery, but history does provide enough clues for an astonishing story. This is a story of soldiers, spies, traitors, redcoats, turncoats, criminals, prostitutes, politicians, great men, terrible men, and before it's over, the largest public execution ever to take place on North American shores. It all happens amazingly within days of the signing of the Declaration of Independence. That's not all. The discovery of this plot and the effort to investigate it 
led colonial authorities to devise new systems of intelligence gathering and counterespionage. In many ways, this strange plot against George Washington would lead to the establishment of a whole new field of American spycraft, now known as counterintelligence. At the center of it is a deadly conspiracy against one man, the man on whose life the very future of America depends. This is Brad Meltzer. You're listening to Our American Stories. And thank you to Brad for that reading and for his terrific book, The First Conspiracy, The Secret Plot to Kill George Washington, available at bradmeltzer.com and everywhere that books are sold. This is Lee Habib, Brad Meltzer, The Story of George Washington, and The Secret Plot to Kill Him, here on Our American Stories. continue here with Our American Stories, and it's time for our Opportunity America series, sponsored by Coke Industries. More than 67,000 people across America are employed by Coke, and there's a good chance that their work intersects with your own story in some way. The great folks at Coke make products that help improve medical devices, consumer electronics, vehicle safety, fabrics for clothing, filtration for clean water, and innovations for popular household brands. In the process, they're creating jobs and opening paths to opportunity for everyone to create their own American story. Learn more about Coke's incredible work at CokeIND.com. That's Coke, K-O-C-H-I-N-D.com. And without further ado, here's the story brought to us by Joey Cortez of this remarkable young man. One day, I was watching the news, and I saw, unfortunately, that a set of twins had died due to heat stroke in a hot car. And at this point in time, my mom was pregnant with my baby sister, and I didn't want this to happen to her or anybody else. So I decided I had to invent something that would solve this problem. Hello, my name is Danny Mefford. I'm 12 years old, and I enjoy inventing. When I was young, I used to have this kit called Snap Circuits, which is basically a little circuiting kit, but I always used to build things with that, then take them apart, then build new things with it. I started watching this TV show with my dad called Nova, and they had one segment about outer space with Neil deGrasse Tyson in it, and that just really got me interested in his book, so I started reading up about stuff like that. And ever since then, I've been fascinated by space. Books have knowledge, and like when you read stuff like that, it opens your understanding of everything. There's this test that we take, it's called the Kogat test, and if you place in the 95th percentile or higher, you get into that cognitive ability class. We basically do things that you want to do in an ordinary class, like we do problem-solving things that really open our minds up. The teacher also uses a national curriculum called Invention Convention which helps develop creative problem-solving and critical thinking skills through invention and entrepreneurship. The students find problems and create inventions to solve them, competing with other students in their classroom, within their schools, state, and even across the nation. 
The first invention I worked on was back in third grade. It was an invention to block rays of sun from getting into your photos. We made it out cardboard, then we went to popsicle sticks, then we went to paper mache that we covered in tin foil and painted black. It was really it was a really fun process. In the fourth grade I invented the baby saver. The baby saver is a weight activated heat sensor that attaches to a car seat and when it gets too hot or cold inside of a car, it'll notify a parent or a guardian that the baby is stuck inside of the hot car. I started tinkering around with some snap circuits, some heat sensors, some tactile buttons until I just got a bunch of prototypes until I built my way up to the invention I have now. So on the base of the car seat, there is a momentary tactile push button. When pressure or weight is applied to it, it turns on a circuit. Connected to the bottom of this are two black wire extenders coming from the bottom of the car seat. Connected to the black wire extenders are a 9 to 12 volt converter and an LED light up screen. The 9 to 12 volt converter allows my invention to be plugged into any USB port, which can be more modern cars, solar panels, and even battery packs. Connected to the LED light up screen is a temperature probe, which is placed at the top of the car seat and is placed there because heat rises. Heat stroke does occur at 104 degrees. My alarm goes off at 85 degrees to give parents, police, or anyone who needs to rescue the baby enough time to get to the child. My invention has an alarm that goes off, which is almost like an alarm to wake you up. I want Bluetooth capability from my invention to the parent's phone. That is something that I'm still looking into right now. But yeah, that would be the Futuretic. Once it gets too hot, it automatically notifies the parent. On my app, there is a section where you enter what your car looks like, the license plate of your car, the location of your car. So if it does have to go to the police, the police know exactly where it's located, what the car looks like, and what to look for. In any process of making anything, there are points where you want to give up or you want to stop trying. But thankfully, I have a very supportive family around me that when something like that happened, they told me to get back up and start anew. In any design process, I don't like to call them mistakes or mess-ups, but they're unscheduled learning opportunities where you look at that, you say, hey, I messed up there. I'm going to look up, move forward, try again. So basically that's what I did until I got something that worked. And I tinkered around again and got something better than that. I grew off from my old inventions and made them into the invention I had now. I recently went to National Invention Convention, which is in Michigan at the Henry Ford Museum. So the National Invention Convention is the third and final contest in the Invention League competition. First, you do regionals, which is at your school. Then you do state, which is where you Come together with people around the state and compete there. Then you go to nationals, which is from people across America and from other countries come there too. 
the couple awards I won was first place for fifth grade, and the second award I won was the Coke Industries Kid Innovator. There was around 600 people there, and they all had so incredibly fantastic inventions, and I really didn't think that I could outweigh that, but when I heard that I was chosen to have the Coke Award, it was amazing. I mean, like, it was incredible. I was in awe because when stuff like that happens, you really don't believe it's happening. But I was so grateful, and it just all added up to that moment right there. And it was awesome. Honestly, I had no clue what what the award meant until we got an email. Then I was just like, oh, God, this is more than just a award at Nationals. They actually invited me out to Molex Automotives, one of their R&D departments in Michigan. The first thing I see when I walk in is they have a slideshow playing, and it said, Welcome, Danny Mefford. So automatically, I was feeling very welcomed from them, which was amazing. I got handed a badge. Then we went into a conference room where I got to brainstorm with people about my invention. And it was crazy because when they gave me the lab tour, I got to see so many things I didn't even know that they have to do before they put things out there on the market. Like they were testing wires to put on the bottom of a car and they had to strap them onto these machines, and, like, the machine would shake for, like, 30 minutes. They would also put these in these boxes with, like, 300-degree temps to see if they would withstand that. It was definitely life-changing because it opened my eyes to what kind of jobs are out there. It opened my eyes to what I can do to get my product on the market. So, yeah, I am so so glad that I was able to have the opportunity and still to this day I'm using the things that I was taught at Molex in my everyday life. I have I'm patent pending for the baby saver which is another amazing thing that Coke and Molex was able to provide me and actually I'm going to nationals this year for my invention the quick click. The Quick Click is a simpler and easier way to install a car seat. So basically, it is a slim piece of plexiglass with a carabiner attached to the end. And you slide it through the hole of the car seat, which nobody likes having to shove the seatbelt through that little hole where you get your hand scratched up and stuff like that. That's never fun. So my invention is a thin piece of plexiglass with a carabiner and when you slide it through the end you attach it to the seatbelt and then you simply pull it through without the hassle of having to do it by hand. My parents inspire me to keep on moving forward but another person who inspires me is Stephen Hawkins because he even through his disabilities in life he pushed through that and became one of the most well-known physicists to ever step foot on Earth. It inspires me that even when something bad happens, you just have to push forward. I would like to be remembered as a human who lived a kind life. I just want to be 
someone who's kind, helpful, innovative, and loving, and someone who changed the world. And you've been listening to Danny Mefford. My goodness, be still my heart. And what parents, that is not an accident, folks. That is some that is some great parenting. And by the way, mess-ups aren't mess-ups. I'm never using it again. It's an unscheduled learning opportunity. An unscheduled learning opportunity. And by the way, what work Coke Industries is doing, CokeIND.com. That's CokeIND.com. Danny Mefford's story, our Opportunity America series, sponsored by Coke Industries here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanStories.com. That's OurAmericanStories.com. They're some of our favorites. Today we bring you the story of Joshua Texador, and it all starts not far from my hometown, and not far from Robbie's hometown, too a town called Passaic, New Jersey. I come from a single-parent household. My mom had me (laughs) when she was in high school. Uh, You know, low-middle-class lifestyle. You know, my mom, I appreciate her very much. I think it was awesome that she decided not to be a statistic and I know for her it was really hard and we've spoken about it before where um, when she decided to have me at at the young age of 17 that um, you know that you know pretty much people were telling her that her life was over and she was never going to make it and uh, last year she just finished getting her master's degree in education she teaches uh, elementary school now and that's like her dream job so but as far as growing up, you know, my mom and I, it was just us until I was eight. And then that's when my stepfather came into the picture. But for the most part, you know, it was me and my mom pretty much through everything. And, uh, you know, she was determined to get us out of the low income area that we were in, you know, working two, three jobs and really grinding it out. She got us out of that position, and you know we were able to move to a, the next town over, which is more of a, more of like a suburb. I mean, things just went well from there. Definitely different, going from one type of lifestyle to another type of lifestyle, because it was just me and my mom, and my entire family is in the next town over. So, being the only child at that point, um, I had to grow up fast, uh, just trying to help my mom out with stuff. So I always had chores I needed to do I was um, I was always I didn't want to ever disappoint her she needed to do what she needed to do at that time to make sure that we were able to move on with life and and prosper and not you know not so much as have us stay stuck in our circumstances which um, a lot of people end up doing and they just take it on the chin and they just keep it moving so that's pretty much my upbringing in my childhood 
I definitely took a lot of pride in it. Um, I think I definitely had a, a strong understanding, even as a kid, that like, hey, like, you know, you need to be a hard worker. And I think that's where I definitely get my, my work ethic from. Um, I mean, man, my mom was all over the place working. And even on the weekends, uh, my mom did hair. And uh, my aunt, uh, God rest her soul, she owned the beauty parlor. My mom worked on the, at the beauty parlor on the weekends. I used to spend weekend after upon weekends at the beauty parlor with my mom all day. And, you know, I mean, she'd be tired, but I mean, I, I understood that she, she, she needed to make things happen. And she knew in herself that um, nobody was gonna give her anything. Um, she knew that, you know, things weren't gonna come easy, but uh, she was determined to definitely change our, uh, our circumstances. And, you know, she, she's one of those people who, she just wanted to, she wanted more. She always wanted more. And I'm sure people thought that she was selfish or that she thought that she was better than other people. But I don't, I never saw it like that. I mean, if you want more out of life, I think you need to go out and actually do something that, like, you know, you have to actually go out and make it happen and not so much as sit back and hopefully things change. You know, she had, she had her own place. She had her own car. She was taking care of me. I mean, I always had like the freshest clothes. You know, I always had the newest sneakers. Uh, when Nordica was real big, I had a Nordica jacket. I mean, I've could I've had every toy you can possibly think of. Um, at one point, I had the PlayStation and an N64 at the same time, which I was like one of the only people I knew who had both. I know a bunch of people, you either had one or the other, and I had both. And maybe that's maybe that <laughs> maybe I'm spoiled for that. But um, you know, my mom always was the person who was like, "Hey, if I work hard for something and I want to." and I want to do something with my hard work, then I, we can have whatever we want um, if we're doing things the right way. So, I mean, I I can't say enough how much uh, gratitude I have for her and uh, getting us through those early years of uh, a life. Uh, it was hard for me because like my entire family is from Passaic, New Jersey. Like my mom's side and my dad's side, everybody is from Passaic, New Jersey. So, you know, I have pretty much cousins upon cousins and aunts and uncles and everybody, you know, Passaic is not the biggest place in the world. So anytime you wanted to see somebody or hang out with somebody, you know, anybody and everybody was anywhere within five to 10 minutes away. And to go from that to moving in the next town over and to not have anybody was hard for me. And especially when it's literally just my mom and I, and then I'm in a new environment and I mean, and at that time, uh, Passaic was all black and all uh, Spanish and Clifton was a predominantly white town. So when we moved to Clifton, I was, uh, how old? Uh, we moved to Clifton, I think I was six years old. Yeah, cause I had first grade, yeah. So I was six years old when we moved to Clifton and I was in an elementary school. I was like one of the only black kids in the entire school. And you're listening to Joshua Texador. My goodness, what testimony about his mom. She worked, she worked, and she worked some more. And he had a strong understanding of what it took to be a hard worker from her. She spent weekend after weekend at that beauty parlor. And she was determined, he said, to change our circumstance. And so many moms are. These single moms, the work they do, how valiant they are, it's remarkable. There was a man involved, a, a stepfather, but you could tell it was mom. It was mom. 
Here's Joshua. It was it was just weird and it was different. Um, it was real hard for me to watch how a lot of the kids had mom and dad, and then I only had mom. And at the same time, you know, mom wasn't always there. And you know, and sometimes like my mom would be working and she couldn't even pick me up from school. And I've had to have like family friends pick me up or a, a, a family member have to pick me up from school because, you know, she was out doing what she needed to do so that, you know, we had what we had. So, I mean, like seeing all of that, and I, and I could see where like a lot of kids go through stuff like that and it could really like affect them. But like, I took, I took pride in that. I was like, man, look, my mom's out there. Like she's, I know my mom's working. I know my mom's keeping the lights on. I know my mom's keeping the roof over our head. I know my mom's putting food on the table. So like me being me, to take care of my end, I, my grades were always spot on. I never wanted to disappoint her with my grades and anything that she needed done in the house. Um, you know, it was get home, eat, homework, and then chores. And by that time she was in the house and I didn't never want her to come home and stuff wasn't done. So that was, that's what it was like growing up like that. For, <laughs> she would say like, you know, if she has to go out and work all day, um, she all she needed me to do was cover my end, you know, and she's like, you know, having good grades shouldn't be hard. Like you should want to have good grades. And then in the house, you know, if I'm at work all day, I shouldn't have to come home and also have to take care of this if you're already home and you can help me out. So I was always just trying to be like, you know, lend an extra hand, but that extra hand, like I was supposed to be doing that. <laughs> like, I didn't really have an option. I never really um, experienced like uh, discrimination, but it was it was like polar opposites for me because it's like on one end, everybody looks like me, everybody acts like me, and then you go to another environment and it's like the complete opposite. So, I mean, I know people don't like the, the term code switch. Code switching, I think it's just a term, but like you're not gonna talk to your friends like the way you talk to your grandparents. So you would have to code switch. At an early age, I learned how to blend in with pretty much any and everybody. So I mean, I think that's definitely worked as a positive for me in life, and even as an adult now, like I can literally get along with everybody because I've, I grew up with everybody and every type of demographic and religion and people with different backgrounds, and I that's I, I think that's definitely helped me grow as a person. I started playing football, I think I was nine years old, and I only played basketball. I wasn't interested in playing football, like, at all. And then uh, when I was eight years old, my stepfather came into the picture, and he was like, yeah, man, like, you know, you should play football. And I'm like, ah, I don't know. And I didn't really even know, like, the rules or anything. I just knew that football existed. And uh, I didn't want to hit. I, I did not want to hit at all. I didn't want to be hit. I didn't want to be touched. I just wanted the glory. I just wanted to score touchdowns and be like the cool kid on the team. And, but like, it was a big, it, I loved football because it was a release for me. And, you know, uh, I think a lot of stuff going on at that time, you know, in, in life, it was like, man, I get to like really go out there and, and be a part of something. And I could go out there and release my frustrations and have a controlled, like have controlled anger and, I mean, ever since then, man, my love for football, 
I mean, I still love football today. Um, I miss playing football. I don't think I will ever, not ever miss playing football. But um, I mean, football has done a, a lot for me, especially when it comes to relationships and especially when it comes to um, uh, hard work and longevity and trying to uh, just be better. I went to Seton Hall Prep for high school and I felt like I wasn't getting my, my due. I 100% feel like if it wasn't for me going to see Hall Prep, I would have never uh, had a chip on my shoulder. I had a huge chip on my shoulder because I just knew. I knew I was better than guys on the team. I broke my finger my freshman year, so I, uh, that really didn't work out for me. And then my sophomore year, um, I had a great sophomore year. Uh, you know, we went undefeated on the sophomore team and on the JV team, and I was a captain on both teams. So I'm thinking, hey, we're going to junior year. Things are going to work out. We're going to, you know, we're about to do our thing. And same thing. Hey, man, let's go out and let's win the state championship. But then my junior year came, and um, the coaching staff just felt like I wasn't good enough to be on the JV team. So I'm like... You know, what's going on right now? Like, why? Like, I mean, I was a standout player last year. Why would I not be a standout player this year? And, you know, it got to the point where I'm a junior and they wanted me to practice with the sophomore team. I wasn't even allowed to practice with the JV team. And, I mean, I you want to talk about being pissed off and really wanting to get after it. I mean, I had a few practices where me and the coaches staff got into it because I'm like, this is complete BS. I don't know why why we're doing this and um you know and then I arguments with my stepfather at the time because I'm like hey man this is going to be a waste of a year because I'm going to sit the bench my entire junior season and he was like there's no way they can sit you like y'all you know you go out there and you work hard and sure enough I went out and sat I wasted my entire junior season um I didn't have any numbers I didn't really do I don't even think I scored a touchdown my junior year it was just that bad That right there, I was like, you know, I just got to make something happen. And also, if I really want to succeed the way I want to succeed, I need to be in an environment where I can succeed. And I mean, going, you know, transferring to Clifton was probably one of the best decisions I've ever made. So when I transferred to Clifton my senior year, the only thing on my mind was a state championship. I said, I don't care, like, who's on the team. I don't care who we have to play. Uh, I got to win a state championship so I can go back to see a whole prep and talk my talk my mess. So, um, I, I knew going in, I knew going into it, um, coach, uh, coach Ron Anello was the coach at the time. And when I sat down and talked with him, you know, he's like, you know, we already have a team put together, which I already understood. He's like, you know, we have a team put together and you know, if you, if you know, if you want to be a part of this, you know, you have to be willing to do anything. So I literally was willing to do anything and it came to blocking, I would block. Uh, at running back, I knew both sides on running back. Uh, I played. I was at outside linebacker. I was at corner. I was the punt returner, the kick returner. Uh, you know, I, I pretty much was all over the field, and I didn't care about touchdowns, and I didn't care being about being the star of the team. I cared about winning at the end of the day. And if the and if Coach Anello told me to run through this brick wall so we could win, I would run as hard as I could through a brick wall so that we could win. When I transferred to Clifton, um, we were predicted to lose every single game of the season. We were predicted to lose every single game of the season. And, like, that motivated me. Like, I, I'm one of the people, I read the articles. 
I want to see what people have to say. And it's not so much so I can fire back, but that, 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 that stuff fueled me. And me not getting any playing time or looks at seeing her prep fueled me. And pretty much I got to a point where I was like, I don't really care. Nobody can tell me anything. Like, we're going to go out and win the state championship. And sure enough, we actually end up winning the state championship in New Jersey. After graduating, uh, I actually considered, really considered going to King University in Union because the coach there is, is a Clifton guy and my best friend in high school and our starting quarterback, they had already committed to Keene. And I was also one of the players who got a look to go to Keene. Uh, but I, I, wanted to, I wanted to get out of New Jersey. I wanted to experience something new. I went to Hampton University. Uh, that's in Hampton, Virginia. It's a HBCU uh, down in Hampton. I mean, I literally had the time of my life. <laughs> I literally had the time of my life at Hampton. I had way too much, <laughs> I had way too much fun. Uh, I think my, my biggest curve was I, what messed me up was uh, I didn't have any study habits. I didn't have any study habits. I didn't really do any reading. So where I did have fun because it's college, I really wasn't mentally equipped or mature enough to actually go through college and handle it. I wasn't happy. More than anything, I, I, like, I hated it. I got to the point where I was like, ah, like the fun's over. Like, I don't really know why I'm here anymore. You know, um, the I think the the biggest turning point for me wanting to be an educator was uh, one time I I was home and my stepfather he was looking at the pay scale and he's like, hey man, look, come over here. And he's like, look, this is the pay scale. So I'm looking at the pay scale and I think the highest number I saw was 160,000. And I'm just like, you know, like that's that's it. Like you make like when you make it to 160 grand, and and that's it. Like it's over after that. And you know, and like I said, and, you know, you don't have the tools, you don't have the supplies. You know, you have uh, in New Jersey, you definitely have uh, crowded schools. You have crowded classrooms. And I'm like, you know, I don't I don't want 32 kids, 36 kids per class, and then I have to worry about getting tenured. I have, you know, I have to worry about getting laid off. And it was like, I started putting the pieces together and I'm like, I don't want to do this. Like, I don't want to do this at all. And I got to a point in life where I was like, look, I can't not do anything. So if I'm not going to be in school, what am I going to do? And from then, that's when I decided to go into the army. It was, <laughs> it was really hard. Um, I definitely got yelled at and screamed at. Um, it was not, it wasn't the, it wasn't what my, what my parents saw what was best for me to do, you know. Um, I was always raised that, hey, if you, if you work hard and you go to college, everything will work out. And, you know, you start getting to a point in life, you're like, that's, that's not true. You know, there's people right now with master's degrees, doctorate degrees, they're living paycheck to paycheck. Like, I, I don't want to be like that. Like, I, I have to be doing I had to be doing something else. So I tried to explain that. And I guess at my, at, you know, being 20 years old and trying to tell my parents like, hey, this is not what I want to do. I want to do something else. It, I mean, it didn't go well at all. And 
I got to the point where I was like, I don't even care anymore. I was like, I'm wasting your time. I'm wasting my time. We're wasting this money because I'm not going to do I'm, I'm I don't want to be here. I'm not going to go to class. And I actually, I literally told them, I was like, I stopped going to class because there's no point in me being here. Like, I might as well just come back home, hit the reset button, go to the army and figure things out. I left my junior year of college um, to go into the army. I, I really, my dream job was to be an army ranger. I wanted to be an army ranger more than anything. And my mom was like hell bent on making sure that I was not an army ranger. And she was like, look, just go into the National Guard and, you know, we can go back to school and we can figure it out. And I think that's, I don't think that she didn't want me to become an Army Ranger. I think that she was just protecting me, um, you know, just being a mom. I mean, I mean, Army Rangers is pretty much like Special Forces type stuff. And, you know, I guess she didn't, I guess she didn't want that for me and she didn't see that for me, even though I saw it for myself. But because of, you know, my upbringing, I don't want to let my mom down. I decided to go into the National Guard with the thought process that, hey, I'll go into the National Guard, have them pay for college, and we'll go from there. And unfortunately, that, that didn't happen. I didn't know what I, at that point, I didn't know what I wanted to do. You know, I was 21. I was trying to figure it out. And I had no, like, you know, I didn't really have any guidance. Nobody was saying, like, you know, what are you doing? What are you planning on doing? So I was just out there for a while, not really doing much of anything and just working. And, you know, and then now I have to deal with life because mom and dad aren't in the picture to shield me from everything. And now I'm just taking on life. Working every day, paying my own bills. And I didn't feel equipped enough to be an adult. So I'm pretty much like payday. You know, we're going out, we're having a good time. Um, I didn't have a savings account. Uh, I didn't know anything about budgeting. I didn't know anything. I didn't, like, I barely knew anything about, like, having a credit score. I didn't have a credit card. Nobody taught me anything. I was always taught that you don't want to have a credit card. So I never had a credit card. And, like, I, you know, I pretty much knew how to survive with, like, $20 to my name until that next paycheck. But, like, I would get paid and pretty much I would blow through my check pretty much that weekend and be broke for the next two weeks. So uh, that was, I mean, it was a learning curve. And I think I had to go through that to get to where I'm at now. Just like being like broke, broke. Being like, like dead broke. And, um, and definitely, um, I had an alcohol dependency. And, and that was bad in itself. And, you know, there'd be times I wouldn't have a dime in my name. But then I would always have alcohol to take care of me. I didn't have no money. But if, as long as I had a bottle, I was good to go. And like that became a cycle. And then I was like, man, like I really need to get it together. But you know, by that time in life, I had already not done anything for so long. Now I'm trying to figure out what I'm supposed to do. And um, that's what I met my, well, she's my wife now. And I met my girlfriend at, at the time. And when we started, uh, dating, just being around her and wanting to do better, then like life started coming around and then I was like, hey, I got to really figure things out. And then the environment that I was in wasn't conducive to me being like a better person and being like the best version of myself. So, you know, a lot of the times 
I, you know, I would call her and be like, hey, can you come pick me up? And she would pick me up. And then I would just stay with her for the weekend and then I would sober up. And then like, you know, and then I'm like, ah, man, I feel good. But then I would have to go back home. So I'm going back, right back in to the same environment that I was in. And it, I mean, it sucked for me because the house I was living in, on both, at both corners, there's a liquor store. And I grew up in the area, so I know everybody. So the liquor stores used to take care of me and I used to take care of them. And it all, like, it was just a cycle. I was stuck in a cycle and I couldn't get out the cycle. And I knew that if I had continued on that journey that I was going on, that I was gonna end up somewhere. I don't know where I was gonna end up, but I was gonna end up somewhere. My wife ended up getting a job down in, in Nashville, Tennessee. I told her, I said, hey, when I come down there, we like, it's a fresh, fresh, fresh start. Like, I can't mess this up. And I felt like God was giving me a window to say, hey, I'm gonna give you this window. You gotta go through the window. I'm not gonna force you, but you gotta make this happen. And I mean, ever since we've come to Nashville, like I pretty much flipped the switch and have done like a complete 180 and, um, you know, turned my entire life around. And you're listening to Joshua Texador and what a story he's telling. And it's straight as an arrow. There's no aggrandizement here or puffery. And my goodness, he had a good time in college until he didn't. And as he put it, he just wasn't mentally equipped to handle it at the time. Then it was the army or not. He started to drink. He was drifting. And the environment, as he put it, wasn't conducive to me being the best part of myself. And so much of what happens does has to do with that environment and it not being conducive to us being the best parts of ourselves. When we come back, we learn more about what happens next. A new opportunity, a woman, a new city. Joshua opens that door and walks into it. Here's Joshua. So while I was in New Jersey, I started doing job vacations so that when I got to Nashville, I already had a head start. So, um, and I also told her, like I made a vow to her. I said, I would, I said, yeah, once I get to Nashville, there's no more drinking. Like that's it. I'm not going to have another drink at all. <laughs> the day I was supposed to get on the plane to come to Nashville, I was like, yeah, man, it's the last day in New Jersey. Like, I had sold all my stuff. I was uh, coaching football at Clifton High School. I was giving my stuff away to the, to the players. I was ready to go, but I was just like, look, man, it's my last day. I'm gonna get as messed up as possible, and then boom, I'll be in Nashville. And then like, that never happened because like, I didn't drink. I had maybe had like two or three sips, and I said, man, you don't need it. I poured my cup out. I put the bottle in the freezer. And I went to sleep. And the next morning I got up and I got on the plane. And I mean, I've been in Nashville ever since. You know, it was, and oh man, especially having a dependency. And I think a lot of people who, who have had an addiction issue can definitely relate to withdrawal might be the worst feeling ever. Alcohol withdrawal is is, uh, is is something I never, ever, ever want to have to go through ever again. And like, I mean, I couldn't eat anything. I couldn't, like, all I could drink was water. I was eating soup. I couldn't eat like any solid foods because it was coming right back up. Um, the cold sweats at night, like I'd be laying in the bed with cat. I'd be rolled up in a blanket. I was sleeping in the sweatshirt and sweatpants and socks. 
and I'm in the bed shivering, pouring with sweat, um, walking around the house because I can't fall asleep. And that went on for like two months of me just like basically going through like a detox. And I mean, I'm proud of myself for getting through it, but going through that right there was enough for me to be like, man, I am never, ever, ever, ever going through this shit again. (laughs) I had no big account. I had $200 in cash, no car, uh, no insurance, no, I didn't, you know, when I said nothing, nothing. I, you know, I had the clothes on my back. I had like one suitcase, you know, um, I, they had to take my stuff out of my backpack because I had packed it so much as a carry-on. <laughs> that was embarrassing. But I basically put everything on my shoulders. I took accountability for all my BS. And I said, look, I'm never going to be a failure again. I'm never going to be broke again. I'm ne- like, I'm going to be dependable. I'm going to be there for people. I'm not going to be, um, I'm not going to be like an anchor on people's lives. Like, I'm going to be the best person I could possibly be. And I actually tried to get into stocks in high school. And I was told, you can't get into stocks because you'll lose all your money. So even before I could even dip my toes in the water to experience what stocks was like, somebody who I trusted told me not to do it. So because they told me not to do it, I never pursued it. Even though it was something that had always, always caught my attention. So now... I had gotten to a point where I don't really care about what anybody has to say, and I don't really care how about anybody feels because I need to make me happy. So when that started, man, I, I, I pretty much kicked the door open, and I'm sitting here like, I wish, if I had been exposed to this at an early age, I don't think I would've went to school to be a teacher. I probably would've went to school to be an accountant or to be in some type of finance uh, department. Cause I mean, I love working with numbers, I love reading up on companies and what they're doing, and looking at ways to generate income. And for me, it's like, look, nobody taught me any of this. I literally spent every single day, um, every single day of last year was dedicated to making money and to generating money that I didn't have to work for and learning how to generate money without me actually having to go to work. So when that started, man, you know, people, you know, people are looking at me different. They're like, man, this is all you ever want to talk about. This is all you ever, you know, did you watch the game last night? I was like, no, I didn't watch the game last night. Like, I don't care. I don't care. I don't. <laughs> I really don't care about watching the game. Hey, man, did you hear about what Coca-Cola is doing? Did you hear about what Starbucks is doing? You know, and I might as well be talking in a different language because nobody wants to talk about that stuff. You know, everybody wants to stay inside their comfort zone. Everybody wants to feel warm inside, and that's nice. And I'm, 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 I'm a go-getter. I got to get after it. I can't just sit back and let life beat me up. I know way too many people in their 60s and 70s going to work because they have to go to work. Man, by the time I'm 60, I'm going to be laid up on a beach and I'm going to be chilling and I'm going to be looking at everybody who didn't listen to me. (laughs) I'm going to be laughing. I'm 110% happy about the journey that I've had to go through to get here. If I had not experienced, you know, heartbreak, if I had not experienced failure, if I had, you know, not experienced being let down, if I hadn't let myself down, I would have never made it to where I am now, you know? So I like, I needed to go through all that stuff. I need to get, I needed life to really beat me up for me to 
say, all right, life, I'm good. I can take it from here. Um, and I think that's a big thing. I think that's a huge issue that we have in general with people is life beats them up and they just shrug their shoulders and, you know, they just keep it moving. And now I'm on the point where I'm on attack mode. I'm on full-blown attack mode, you know. Um, my, my daughter's not even a year yet. She's already got a college fund. And I'm, and I'm literally, I've told people about this and I'm like, hey man, like, you know, I've watched people get screwed over student loans. And I'm like, hey, if you have a kid, start a college fund that generates income while you're sleeping so you could have a better chance at help using that money to pay for college. And people look at me like I got like five heads or something. And I'm like, no, this is literally what like, this is what people do. You know, like my first day of really getting back into investing, I literally Googled. The, the thing I Googled, I, I will never forget this. The thing I Googled when I really first started, started getting into this, I said, what do rich people do? And when, you know, and it's it's Google. They, tell you, they literally give you all the answers. I have, and now like I have a whole bunch of books. I've read six books this year about, um, you know, uh, self-improvement and about finance, you know, and um, and then I, I banned, last year I banned myself from watching football because my goal, one of my goals in life is to go to the Super Bowl. And I told myself, you're, you're not allowed to watch football until we go to the Super Bowl. So I've already, I've already went a year without watching football so that I keep myself focused on going to the Super Bowl. And you know, people are like, man, but you could just go to a game. I don't want to go to a game. I'm not going to care about any regular season game if I can go to the Super Bowl at the end of the year. So what does it matter? And people don't look at it like that. People, they just, they just happy with what they have. And I, I'm looking forward to what I'm going to have from all the hard work. So when it's all said and done, more than anything, I want financial freedom. And if anybody doesn't know what financial freedom is, it's when you have enough income coming in where you can just pretty much do whatever you want to do. Like, you know, you don't, you don't owe anybody anything. You don't have any debt. Um, everything's paid for. You know, I want to, I want to live a type of life where if, if I want to, if I want to tell my wife, hey, let's go to Europe, and we could just pack up and go to Europe. Like I want to live like that. Now, people for some reason have issues with that. I don't know why. Like, who doesn't? Who would not want to live like that? You know, I've had, I've even told people. I said, look, if I have to work as hard as, I, if I, if you told me right now that if I worked as hard as I possibly can, like I'm 30 years old, if I worked as hard as I possibly can right now for 20 years and for the next for the next 50, I can live however I wanted to live. Best believe I will get up with a smile on my face every single day. Kill it, kill it every single day for the next 20 years. And from 50 until I'm 100, I can do whatever I want. Yeah, that sounds good to me. I, I would do that. But some people, they just get comfortable, you know, everybody gets comfortable in their circumstances. They're happy where they are. And I can't, I, I mean, if you're happy where you are, I'm happy for you. But don't think that. I'm going to start what I'm doing because, because it makes you uncomfortable. I, 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 I can't control your circumstances. I just know that I'm trying to build a legacy for mines. I want the Texador name to mean something. I want people to, to say, oh, man, yeah, they, he, you know, they want, that's the Texador. Yeah, that's the Texador family. I want that for, I want that for me. I want, I want more, just like how my mom wanted more. And so since my mom took us from point A to point B, I feel like it's up to me to take us from point B to point C. And then I tell my kids, Aya, you gotta take us from point C to point D and so far and so forth.
And what a voice, what a story. Great job on that, Robbie, a great find. And you've been listening to Joshua Texador. I want the name Texador to mean something. And my goodness, it already does to everybody here in the studio listening and to everybody out there listening too. He said, I'm 110% happy about the journey I had to get through to be here. I needed for life to really beat me up. He also said, I took accountability for all of my BS. And boy, there's plenty of BS to be passed around from family members ourselves. And if you can get to that point in your life where you can address those things, you're halfway home. My daughter is not a year old, and she already has a college fund. And he was beaming when he said that. I want financial freedom. I want more. Joshua Texador's story, a classic American story, if ever we've had one here on this show. Here on Our American Story. Our American Story. 